Let's take our precious Bibles, the inspired and preserved words of God, and open to Deuteronomy chapter 12. Deuteronomy chapter 12. I believe it good for us, and especially our children, to be reminded that we are Baptists and that they should be thankful that they're Baptists, that God chose them to be Baptists from the beginning, because He loved them. And he said, by the sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth, he called them to be Baptists. To hold the truth of the gospel against all enemies. And I pray that our young people will so lay hold of this doctrine that they will never move. No matter how much sophistry or philosophy or lying deceit would ever be turned against them by Presbyterians or others who claim the name of Jesus. They are in gross error on the doctrine of baptism. It is a heretical position that they hold, and it's one they took from the Church of Rome because there is no other place they got it. They couldn't leave Rome altogether. The Reformers just couldn't do it because mommies would get too upset if they did not have a way of salvation for their little infants. And so we want our children and our young people and our young adults and our young couples To understand that we are charging you, and I am charging you, and the Lord Jesus Christ is charging you to be Baptists, and to stay Baptists, and to remain Baptists, and to defend Baptist doctrine against all others. We live in a generation where men are ashamed to be Baptists. Baptists have always been ridiculed. They've always been persecuted. But let us not be ashamed of being Baptists. God's called us to be Baptists. The Bible is a Baptist book, period. Christianity is a Baptist religion, period. Believe it. Learn it. Read the Word of God and see. There's no Presbyterian found in it. There's no infants baptized anywhere in the New Testament, and there is no sprinkling or pouring anywhere in the New Testament. The only defense they can make is by appealing to types and shadows of the Old Testament because they have nothing. They took it from Rome. Let us be true to what God has called us to be, called us to believe, and called us to do. The Bible hasn't varied from the beginning to the end in what God expects of His people. I turn you to Deuteronomy 12 to read verse 32 with me. Deuteronomy 12, 32. What things soever I command you, observe to do it. Thou shalt not add thereto nor diminish from it. What thing soever I command you, observe to do it. And so when it comes to the doctrine of baptism, we are no more intense about it and dogmatic about it than the Word of God tells us to be in Deuteronomy 12:32. What God commands, we are to observe it, not a variation of it. Not a modified it, not a more convenient it, not a more practical it, but it. And we're not to add thereto, we're not to take away from it. That hasn't changed. Look at Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. Don't you ever let anyone appeal to history or to fathers or to opinions or to philosophy, or to deeper spiritual meanings, or to the Old Testament, 
for a New Testament practice. Matthew chapter 28, the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 18 is speaking to the eleven disciples as it tells us in verse 16. And he said to them in the last half of verse 18, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Amen. The point I want at this moment from this text is in verse 20, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. This is the same argument from Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 32. Because if you teach whatsoever Jesus Christ ordered his apostles, then you cannot add to it. And if you teach all of it, then you cannot subtract from it. Matthew 28, 20 is the same as Deuteronomy 12, 32. The book would end in Revelation chapter 22 by saying, Whoever takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy shall have his part taken out of the book of life. And anyone that adds to the words of the book of this prophecy shall have added to him the plagues that are described therein. The word of God does not allow us to take away or to add. And when you baptize infants, you've added something. And when you take away much water and are content with a cup, you've taken away something. You've added and you've taken away. You've added infants and you've taken away much water. We will not accept infant baptism. And we will stand with our fathers and we'll stand with our father, the Apostle Paul. And with our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, and our Father, John the Baptist. And we will be Baptists. It is by God's choice you're a Baptist. It's by God's blessing that you're a Baptist. I wanted to use 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 15 again today. Because it says, we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord. Because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Whereunto he called you by our gospel, to the obtaining of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions that ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. That's what we want to do. We want to stand fast. That means fasten in one spot, not moving. We aren't going to say that we'll accept sprinkling and pouring. We're not going to accept infants that have been baptized by any mode that come later and want to join our church. That is not a baptism. We'll be Anabaptists and rebaptize them all over again. Because we can find that in the New Testament as well. We're Baptists. And we're Baptists because God loved us. Brethren, beloved of the Lord. The reason, the reason that we are not bowing and scraping before some idol today, or thumbing the beads of a rosary, or engaged in some other false religion, is because God loved us. And we are bound to give thanks all way to God because He has saved us from those lies and strong delusion by the sanctification of the Spirit by which He gave us a new heart, a new man that loves truth and will tremble before the Word of God and by the belief of the truth that He put in our hearts because He opened our hearts as He opened the heart of Lydia and He called us to it by sending preachers with beautiful feet that taught us the doctrine of Baptist baptism. Thank you, Lord. It is not less than that. 
It is by God's grace. Or listen, we'd be rubbing elbows on our little prayer rail behind some pew. Some of you have done that in your lives. It's by God's grace that we don't do that. Why we are Baptists is not a question. Because we're not asking. We're answering. Why we are Baptists is an exclamation point, not a question mark. And we start with the Word of God because Deuteronomy and Matthew and Revelation and everywhere in between tells us that when God commands something, that's what we're to do. And He's made baptism plain enough for children to figure out. And so we hold to it. We do not believe the Bible because we're Baptists. We're Baptists because we believe the Bible. Oh, you Baptists just believe the Bible so much. Oh, no. We believe the Bible, and that makes us Baptists. Because when we read the Bible, and we don't read the church fathers, we end up in the baptistry. And it's a big one, not a little one. Would you die for baptism truth? Would I? I hope so. I may disagree, and you may disagree with me against this man on many points. But Michael Servetus was burned at the stake in Geneva, Switzerland, supposedly the freest city on earth, in 1553 for two official crimes. He rejected Origen's doctrine of eternal generation of the Son of God. As do we. We believe Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. Two, he repudiated infant baptism. Those are the two official crimes that John Kelvin burned Michael Servetus to death. If you think that's too harsh on John Kelvin, then go home and open up from your library or online the Institutes of the Christian Religion. Go to book four and read chapter 16. And see the arrogance, the arrogance and hatred of John Kelvin for Baptists. It's about 32 paragraphs long. And you can read the arrogance, the profane arrogance of that man who had no answers. Because all he could appeal to time after time after time was circumcision, which doesn't have a thing to do with New Testament baptism. Not a thing. No apostle ever connected the two. The Lord Jesus Christ never connected the two. We don't want anything to do with Abraham's circumcision. The council of Jerusalem was to get rid of that doctrine. You would think that if there was ever a time where infant baptism would have been imposed upon the churches, it would have been at the council of Jerusalem where circumcision was the great issue at stake. Did they say anything about, we no longer circumcise, but we sprinkle babies? No. If you read the attacks of our enemies against Baptists, it will stir you up like you wouldn't believe if you have a heart for truth. And if you have a heart for our ancestors and the faith that were persecuted by these people who claimed the name of Christ. John Kelvin burned Michael Servetus to death. That is why we don't believe in state churches, no matter how good, how noble, or how far they have come from Catholicism, because they'll do it to us. Pado-Baptists hate Baptists. A Pado-Baptist is an infant baptizer. That's why it's called Pado-Baptism. Don't ever be surprised by the word Pado-Baptism. 
That's why our brothers in South Carolina years ago named their church Antipato, Baptist Church of Christ. Would you die for baptism? Michael Servetus did. And he died for the sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ. The true incarnate sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Institutes, Book 4, chapter, Section 16. John Calvin. If anybody asks you if we're Calvinists, no, we're not Calvinists. Amen. We're Baptists. Right. I'd rather be named after John the Baptist right. than John the Calvin. There's no comparison between the two. One was a French lawyer so full of Catholicism that he couldn't regurgitate it all. Making a state church. We hate state churches. If we had a privilege of having a state church and making it Baptist, we wouldn't accept it. Because God's never called us to that. We're strangers and pilgrims in this world. We don't care what a government believes as long as they'll let us live in liberty and baptize where there's much water. Remember the big issue that gets us, that gets people in so much trouble is to assume that baptism saves. And as soon as you assume that baptism saves, you start changing the doctrine of baptism because you have problems that arise. As soon as you believe baptism saves, then you want to apply it to infants because what if your child dies before it gets old enough to get a Baptist baptism? So they originated infant baptism. The first great defender of it was Augustine of Hippo in the 4th century. 350s. Because if you believe that baptism saves, and no one's getting baptized until they're 10, 15, 20 years of age, then what do I do for my child between birth and the age of 10, 15, or 20? What do I do for them? How can I deny them salvation? And so they moved it down to infants in the Roman Catholic Church. Oh, they, they kept immersing them. They immersed them for another... 800, 900 years. Oh, yeah. The Church of England, when it left the Catholic Church in the Common Book of Prayer, in the instructions for baptism, it tells the priest on how to dip the baby in the name of the Father and dip the baby in the name of the Son and dip the baby in the name of the Holy Ghost. They dipped it three times. Oh, yes. The Eastern Catholics still do it to this day. See, the, the Catholic Church that is around us is called the Western Catholic Church. It's the Latin Catholic Church. It's the one that came out of Rome. But another Catholic Church went east and came out of Constantinople. And it's called the Eastern Catholic Church, and it's called the Greek Rite. And so the Eastern Catholics and the Greek Orthodox Church, which number several hundred million, they still immerse their babies. Because they know what the word baptizo means in Greek. Who should we listen to? The Latin fathers as they try to tell us what the Greek word baptizo means? Or should we listen to the Greek fathers whose ancestors have spoken Greek for 3,000 years on what they believe the word baptizo means in Greek? And they show you what it means by they still immerse their babies. I, I enjoy that. You may not appreciate that, but I enjoy that. That the Greek Catholic Church still takes the little baby and puts it all the way under the water. Now, they're so wrong with doing it to a baby 
But I like the fact that they know baptizo means immersion, submersion, dip it, get it all the way under, bury it. Right. Once you start that baptism saves, that's where you get in trouble. And I know I'm being elementary on this topic. If you want to be more advanced, then let's consider some of those subjects about that pertain to baptism that you find intriguing to you. But I want, our, I want our young people and all the members of our church to be established as to why we're Baptists. Amen. I want them to know where Catholic doctrine came from. Right. And the fundamental false premise, the false assumption, the error, the heretical error, is to believe that baptism saves and you get yourself in all sorts of trouble. So then they reduce the age all the way down to birth. No, that isn't true. They reduced it lower than birth. Because Catholics believe in intrauterine baptism. You may spell it in a Google search, I-N-T-R-A-U-T-E-R-I-N-E. It's intrauterine. And it will explain to you in the Catholic Encyclopedia about the devices that you can use in order to baptize your baby before it's born. Because after all, it could die in childbirth. And why would you keep salvation from it? Their doctrine of salvation is so pitiful. Though you get the baby saved with the waters of baptism, if baby commits a mortal sin after that and doesn't confess it and do penance, it's going to go to hell anyway. Or be purified in purgatory if it's a venial sin. Or whatever. They've made up so many different rules. It doesn't matter. We want to follow the Bible. What else happens when you, make the, when, when you say that baptism saves? What if you're in a place where someone's going to die and all you've got is a canteen? You believe baptism saves. You're in a place where there's no water but what you've got in a canteen. What do you do? Surely, the Lord knows I don't have enough water for immersion. Therefore, if I pour a little bit on this poor man or this poor woman, if I pour a little water on grandpa or grandma or on this baby that's about to die, surely God will save it. And so you come up with sprinkling and pouring. That's because you believe in original sin. And the Catholics, to their little tiny, tiny, tiny bit of credit, do believe in something called original sin. That's why they want to baptize those babies. But what if you realize, I can't do that. I just can't baptize a baby. I'm going to have to wait until it's old enough so that it can answer the questions itself and not its godparent. If you do that, then you get rid of original sin. The Church of Christ, Alexander Campbell and his followers. They get rid of original sin and they come up with the age of accountability. So that even if you die as a five-year-old, you can tell mommy, your five-year-old went to heaven because it hasn't reached the age of accountability where it needs to get baptized in order to be saved, in order to go to heaven. Are you with me? These doctrines all come from the fact that baptism saves. And like I've said before, and I'm repeating myself, and I know that, the Mormons believe that only their baptism saves. And if you're not baptized in an underground baptistry in one of their temples, then you are not saved. And what happened to all your relatives, your whole family tree, since they know their church didn't even get started until about 1830? You get to be baptized by proxy for those relatives. So they keep genealogical records so that you can go to their temple and get baptized over and over and over and over again. In baptism for the dead. Because it works this way. Baptism saves. 
But the only true baptism since Jesus and the apostles is Mormon baptism. Since Mormon baptism is necessary to be saved, and since my grandpa and grandma didn't get to meet Joe Smith, i got to get baptized for them, so we'll invent underground baptistries in our temples in order to save grandpa and grandma. And it all comes from one faulty premise. Baptism saves, and it doesn't save. And that's why we're Baptists. We don't have to corrupt baptism by pouring a little bit on someone who's dying that hasn't been baptized because if they're God's elect and they believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, they're going to heaven just as fast as whether they've been immersed or not. And so we don't have any motive to corrupt the doctrine. We argue from our English Bible about words. Brethren, don't you ever accept the, the word paraphrase about a Bible. The word paraphrase means that some man is putting, is writing a novel about the Bible. The word paraphrase. If you find a Bible that's called a paraphrase, it means that somebody on his way to work read a paragraph or a chapter of the Bible and then they put it into their own words. It's a paraphrase. That was the Good News Bible that came out in about 1970. That's the message that's out today. It's not a translation. It's a novel about the Bible. But see, the Bible uses words very carefully, and it tells us to argue from individual words that God has chosen. And, you know, I don't have time to take you back and show you the eight cases or more that we know of in the New Testament where Jesus and Paul argued from individual words. But the fact that they argued from individual words proves that we cannot trust a paraphrase because that would try to be argued from man's words. And the Bible has this to say, 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy 2, you know verse 15 so well, where it says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The verse before that says, Of these things put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. And when you hear somebody have to go to baptizo to prove the doctrine of baptism, either way, They're wrong. Because we have in our English Bible the right to argue from individual words. There is enough evidence in the New Testament for us to understand the the definition and meaning of the word baptism from the context around each of the cases where the baptism is described. I think I told you last week that in order for you to spell a word correctly and and for you to know the word that is under consideration correctly, you need more than a definition You need it used in a sentence so you know exactly what word is under consideration. And we understand the use of the word baptism because we read the sentences that contain the word baptism and we find that it's talking about immersion of those that believe the gospel and repent for their sins. Just because you can look up a word in a dictionary doesn't prove a thing. Let's chase a rabbit for two minutes. I have run into those that say that you can't sell a dog. Some of you already know this. So just, I have run into those that believe that you can't sell a dog because of a, a verse in the Bible. That if you ever sell a dog and get money for a dog, that you've sinned. Now, if you were to look up that if you were to look up the word dog in any American dictionary or any English dictionary or any Hebrew lexicon, you're going to get a dog. It's a it's a four-legged carnivore. Blah blah. It wags its tail, etc. It barks when it shouldn't. It howls at the moon. It eats its vomit. 
It leaves eight bodily fluids in your house, etc. You, you'll learn all that about dogs. But these people that believe that got their position from a Bible. And unless you go read the context around a word, you don't know what's being talked about. Let's go look at it. Deuteronomy 23. Deuteronomy 23. I'm not talking about some weirdos. I'm talking about someone that you communed with. Many of you. Not all of you. Deuteronomy 23. This is an example. It's an example of Bible study on how we find out what the meanings of words are. It's not from a dictionary. It's from how the Holy Spirit uses the words. Deuteronomy 23, 17 and 18. There shall be no... Let's get verse 18 so that we know where the the, the idea comes from. Because verse 17 is the answer. But let's go to verse 18. I'm still setting you up. Deuteronomy 23:18 Thou shalt not bring the hire of a whore or the price of a dog into the house of the Lord thy God for any vow for even both these are abomination to the Lord thy God. And because of Deuteronomy 23:18 some have taken the idea that you can't sell that little four-legged critter with the wagging tail. And if you went to a dictionary, they're right. And if you went to a lexicon, they're right. But if we go to the word of God, they're wrong. Because Deuteronomy 23, 17 tells us what kind of a dog is under consideration. And it may have four legs and a tail, but it's a different kind of a dog. Deuteronomy 23, 17. There shall be no whore of the daughters of Israel, nor a sodomite of the sons of Israel. There's two things in verse 17. A whore, which is a female sexual pervert. And then there's a sodomite that's a male sexual pervert there's a parallelism here we have the two things in verse 17 when we go to verse 18 we still have the two things thou shalt not bring the hire of a whore the female pervert or the price of a dog the male pervert a sodomite into the house of the lord so we're told by the word of god what the word dog means in deuteronomy 23 18 it's a sodomite and we think it's a very fit and appropriate name for them They're dogs. Sodomites are dogs by the word of God. That's the rabbit trail. So when we look at the word baptism, we don't go to a dictionary and we don't go to lexicons. We go to the word of God. When we find sentences that contain the word baptism, what do they say? They say that both, they both went down into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, And he baptized them. And when we read sentences like that about baptism, we know exactly what baptism is. We don't need a dictionary. And there are so many complaints against the King James Bible because of the word baptism. Because they say King James ordered the word baptism to be kept to protect infant sprinkling. He ordered that words that the nation knew and understood with religious significance were to be kept from the previous versions. But men attacked the King James Bible for the use of baptism. That if baptism was really immersion, then the King James translator should have said dipping, or immersion, or plunging, or submerging. But we don't need the definition of the word. Because we know what the word means by reading the sentences around it. And if you look up the definition in English or Greek, it means to dip, submerge, or plunge. Because that's why we're called Baptists, because we immerse. The whole world knows that. 
If you walk up to anybody that knows anything about religion and say, why are they called Baptists? Because they immerse. And there's hundreds of authorities that can be raised that have spent years of their lives studying the Greek baptizo, and it means to dip, plunge, submerge, immerse. As the Greek Orthodox know so well. But see, we don't go there. We don't have to go there. We argue from the words of Scripture. We compare spiritual things with spiritual. And we can read sentences that have the word baptism in it. And we know what baptism was. How many baptisms are there? Hebrews 6 would tell us that there's more than one. But that's because it's referring to all the different kinds. But when we talk about water baptism, how many are there? There's one. Ephesians chapter 4 tells us there's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism. There's not two, there's not three, there's not four, there's not five. There's one baptism. And that one baptism is the baptism we want to follow. Please turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21. I will stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance to lay hold of the most important axiomatic verse that there is in the Bible about baptism. This is the most definitive. It tells us the most. This is the clearest verse about baptism in the whole Bible. 1 Peter 3.21. What does John Kelvin have to say about it? Why can't they ever get the order right? Just like with circumcision, you had faith after the circumcision, so the answer of a good conscience is after you get it in baptism. That's all he can say about it. has to go to circumcision for everything. I want you to love 1 Peter 3.21. Let's go over it again so that you make sure you understand it. There's no verse that even comes close to 1 Peter 3.21 in all that it says about baptism. It has, three, it has the three most important statements we want about baptism. That baptism does not save. That baptism is by immersion. And that baptism can't be done to infants. And it says it all. Right. Look at it closely. Remember where it is on the page. Be able to find it when you need it. Understand its three parts. The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Like we did last Sunday, let's pull out what's in parentheses, because that's why they're there. The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, By the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Very quickly, it says the like figure because two figures are being compared. There is a figure in verse 20. And that figure is the ark. God put Noah and his family, eight souls, into the ark and closed up the door. And they were saved by God's deliverance in the ark. The waters lifted them up above the destruction that came upon this earth that drowned all flesh that had the breath of life in their nostrils. That was one figure of our salvation in Jesus Christ because God chose us in Christ Jesus to be saved by Jesus Christ being an ark for us from all the destruction around us for the cause of sin. That was a figure. Now, there was a literal salvation in the ark. You were saved from the watery destruction. But there was also a figurative salvation of us in Christ because the word like figure in verse 21 tells us there's two figures. One in 20, one in 21. The like figure... Whereunto even baptism doth also now save us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism has to have a figure in it. 
The ark had a figure. They were put inside of it, and God closed it up. And God saved them in it. Baptism has a figure. And it tells us what the figure is by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is shown in baptism when we are raised up out of the water. We show that Jesus Christ was raised from the water. The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. It's a figurative salvation by picturing our literal salvation in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 3.21 Baptism is a figure. And it's a figure of a resurrection. Therefore, it requires immersion. If you don't have immersion or submersion or a dipping or plunging in water, then you can't bring a person up out of the water to show a resurrection. So we've got a verse that tells us baptism must be figurative of something. And the figure that it shows is resurrection. And as we go through the rest of the New Testament, we learn that that is indeed the case. Because 1 Corinthians 15, 29 says, Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? If the dead rise not at all, why are they then baptized for the dead? Because baptism is a picture of resurrection. And if you don't believe in resurrection, you should stop immersion. We were planted together in the likeness of his death. That we should be also in the likeness of his resurrection. That figure, we can compare scripture with scripture and prove that our interpretation is correct. Baptism is a figure. Here, it's called a figure. Romans 6, it's called a likeness. So we believe that, that it shows a picture. So the first thing we learn as we go into this verse is that baptism is a figurative, symbolic ordinance and it shows a picture of resurrection. And only immersion shows a picture of resurrection. So we learn the proper mode of baptism from that part of the verse. What's outside the parentheses? Now let's go inside the parentheses. The first clause inside, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. The Holy Spirit wants you to understand that the word save in this verse is not to be understood in any legal or vital way of putting away your sins. Because it does not put away the filth of the flesh. Filth, filthiness, and flesh are used in the New Testament with spiritual significance of being your sinful nature. And your sins. And baptism does not put them away. It's So baptism does not save. How do we know that? From the first clause inside the parentheses of 1 Peter 3.21. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. But the answer of a good conscience toward God. Baptism saves us figuratively by allowing us to answer God with a good conscience. This teaches us that baptism can't be done to infants... Because you have to have a conscience that's active and is answering God for something they understand. Where did this good conscience come from? It came from hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the sins they knew they had committed before the eternal God had been paid for on the cross of Calvary by Jesus Christ's death for us. Hebrews 9.14 tells us how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. When we hear about the blood of Jesus Christ, it gives us grounds for having our conscience made good that we're no longer guilty. We're no longer ashamed before God. Our sins have been paid for, and so we answer God with that good conscience. Infants can't do that. Only someone old enough to hear the gospel, to believe the gospel, and to respond to the gospel 
is old enough to be baptized. So one verse. Baptism does not save. Baptism has to be by immersion to show the figure of resurrection. And baptism can only be done to those old enough to have active consciences. It cannot apply to infants. From one verse. And I want you to hold that verse and never give up on that verse. Because there are serious efforts made to overthrow that verse by two means. One, ignore it. Two, corrupt it. When you read most paedo-baptists about baptism, they will not deal with 1 Peter 3.21 or they just rush over it. Go to the aforementioned references of John Kelvin and see if he wants to deal with it. The second thing they do to it is they corrupt it. Now listen carefully. Look at your Bible. and do you, Did you hear the three arguments? Baptism itself is a figure of resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism does not put away the filth of our flesh, meaning our sins. Baptism is the answer of a good conscience toward God. Answer. Because we've heard the gospel. God has saved us by Jesus Christ and we are answering him. For what he's done for us. Let me read to you this this verse from the New International Version. Follow closely and remember the three points that this verse teaches us. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's try the English Standard Version. It came out in 2001. It's quite popular these days. Now look at your Bible and remember that it said there's two figures, the ark in 20, the like figure in verse 21. We also know that there's two figures by the word also. It's later in the, in the first line of verse 21. Remember that baptism itself is a figure. It doesn't put away the filth of the flesh. And it's the answer of a good conscience toward God. It's someone answering God. The English Standard Version. Sold at Bob Jones University now. And just, oh, it's, they're just making a big deal about this Bible everywhere. Baptism, which corresponds to this now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How about the new revised standard version of 1989? And baptism, which this prefigured, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They first of all ignore the verse. Then when they've got to print a Bible, they corrupt the verse. And here's how they corrupt it. No longer is baptism a figure of something. The ark that is in verse 20 was a figure of baptism. And baptism, which this prefigured, and this water symbolizes baptism. They're referring to verse 20, that verse 20 is the ark symbolized baptism. But there are two symbols, because it says the like figure, and it says also in that first line of verse 21. That's the first corruption. 
So they get rid of the fact that baptism needs to be a figure of resurrection. Second of all, the verse says, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. And they say, not the cleansing of dirt from the body. So they reduce baptism to some idea that somebody might get baptized in order to get clean, even with their clothes on. But baptism, they're saying baptism wasn't designed to clean the body of dirt, allowing baptism to be designed to wash away your sins. Do you see that? Third, our Bible says it is the answer of a good conscience toward God. It means that before someone even gets in the water, they already have a good conscience. They've been regenerated and they've been converted. Initially converted enough to be thankful to God for what he's done. But they say it's an appeal to God for a good conscience. Which you could then justify doing it for a baby. There is a war for every point of truth. And I want you to stand fast and defend the truth of God's word. Baptism does not save. Baptism is by immersion, and baptism is only of those old enough to have an active conscience that wants to answer God for what he has done for them. We are Baptists because baptism does not save. Baptism is only a figure and a likeness of how we were saved and of how we should be living for the one who saved us. Look at Romans chapter 6 very quickly, and we'll close for our break. Romans chapter 6. Romans 6. You read it last night, hopefully. These are wonderful words. Pado baptists with a degree of honesty in their character will write about these verses and say that it, that it refers to the apostolic and original and primitive method of baptism, which was always by immersion. And you can read them and read them and read them. Say that. <clears throat> we love Romans 5. I told my children this last night at devotions about how much we love Romans 5 because it shows that God commended his love toward, love toward us while we were sinners, verse 8. It tells us that we were reconciled to God by the death of his son when we were enemies, verse 10. It tells us that while we had a first Adam that condemned us by his singular disobedience, we have a second Adam, Jesus Christ, who saved us and made us righteous by his singular obedience for us. And we come to the last two verses And Paul explains why the law came, why God gave the law to Moses, Romans 5.20, that the offense might abound, that God might show us how sinful we are, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Romans 5 is just crammed full and overflowing with God's grace in Christ Jesus. Salvation is all of God's grace through Jesus Christ's singular obedience for us by him being our representative, as Adam was our sin representative. So Romans 5 is full of grace. So chapter 6 is going to be a practical exhortation. I preached it just a few months ago to you, the whole chapter. A practical exhortation that we ought to live righteous lives. And it starts out this way. What shall we say then? In light of Romans 5, what should be our conclusion? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Now how are we dead to sin? We're dead to the plan of sin because God chose us in Christ. We're dead to the legality of sin because Jesus Christ died for us. We're sort of dead to sin because vitally we have a new man that cannot sin. Your seed remains in you and you cannot sin, 1 John chapter 3. Okay, that's not what he's talking about. 
He's not talking about our death to sin that is eternal, that is legal, or that is vital. He is talking about our death to sin because we are converted Christians. And by converted Christians, we have said we are dead with Christ to live with Christ. That's what he means in the last part of verse 2. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Eternally, legally, and vitally, you can't live in sin because it's already been purged away. But practically, you can be foolish and not live as righteously and as carefully as you should. And so he starts to reason from baptism. Know ye not? This is a mental perspective of practical salvation. This is a reckoning of how we ought to reckon ourselves as the disciples of Jesus Christ. It uses the word reckon in just a few verses. But it uses the word know and knowing several times. This is something that we ought to be able to gather from the fact that we were baptized, that we should not be presuming on the grace of God, that we should be living as sinlessly as possible. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Well, how are we dead to sin, Paul? Know ye not that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death? When we were baptized by being immersed in water to identify ourselves with Jesus Christ, we identified with his death. What aspect of us did we identify with death? Did it mean we wanted to die physically as soon as possible? It meant that we were going to put to death the old man, the sin nature that we had, just like he died for sin. Keep going. This is a wonderful Baptist passage, just like the rest of the Bible. Verse 4. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. Baptism buries us. Because it says we're buried by baptism. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. The point here is not eternal, legal, or vital. It's practical. It's practical. Look, the first two verses tell you it's practical. Shall we continue in sin? No. Because by our baptisms, we identified with dying to self. We killed self. We buried self. We buried it with Christ. He died for our sins. We die against our sins as well with Him. And that like as He rose up from the dead by the glory of the Father, with a new life, a resurrected life, even so we also should walk in newness of life. This is what we're to know about our baptism and know about our conversion. That when we followed Christ, we identified ourselves by being buried in His death and risen in His resurrection. So that we are putting to death our sins, that we're not going to live that way anymore, and that we're going to live a new life. Verse 5. Oh, he he runs this argument for about ten more verses. Through 13. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death. See, here's the word likeness. Baptism is a figure, and it's a figure of death and resurrection. How do you plant something? You stick it down under the ground. You don't just lay it on the sidewalk or the pavement and sprinkle a little dirt on it. You stick it down under the ground. A body is planted. The Bible calls our bodies being buried in a cemetery, putting a seed in the ground, because a new plant's going to come up from it. Therefore, I mean, for, in verse 5, if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. These are things that we are to know. 
that when we are converted and we are baptized, if we are baptized properly, sincerely, understanding the ordinance, we are burying ourselves to rise to walk in newness of life. That's what is important about baptism. And when someone understands that and is living a life to back it up, they're ready to be baptized. And not until. Knowing this, verse 6, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. And we picture all of that when we're baptized, the Baptist way of burying our sins, burying our sinful old self, burying our old man, to rise to walk in a new life. And he goes on for a number of other verses. We are Baptists because baptism does not save in any literal way. It shows us how Jesus Christ did save us, and it shows how we ought to live for Him. In Romans chapter 6.